Good Monday morning. Welcome to Connect, the California MBA's weekly podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with movers and shakers in the mortgage industry. I'm Dustin Hobbs, Communications Director here at the California MBA. We got a great guest today. I'm excited to uh, uh, jump into some legal and regulatory issues with him and find out sort of what uh, what's on tap for 2021. But before we do that, let's thank our sponsors over at Incelerate. Incelerate is the leading mortgage lead management CRM and engagement platform that helps lenders close more loans by increasing efficiency gains across sales, marketing, operations, management. And they uh, recently, this last year, announced the uh, first of its kind mobile app. This groundbreaking mobile app features full lead management, lead distribution, click-to-call, inbound call routing, first-call automation, and two-way compliant text messaging, and provides access to critical loan information without having to use a laptop or log into your LOS system. It also empowers loan officers by intelligently distributing leads, managing pipelines, prioritizing your day, automating best practices, and personalizing the borrower's journey all from the mobile app. So for more information or to catch a demo, uh, you can visit Accelerate.com or uh, call the number listed in the description below. You can also find uh, Josh Friend on uh, LinkedIn. He's very active there. And I'm sure if you reach out to him, he'd more, be more than happy to set you up with a, uh, a demo. So before we get into the conversation here, I want to toss it over to Susan Malazzo, our CEO, for this week's update. Susan? Thank you, Dustin. Hi, this is Susan with the California MBA. And this week, I'd like to talk with you about a webinar that we're hosting along with the National MBA, as well as the Mortgage Bankers Association of New York. We're gonna be talking about commercial real estate finance and uh, the role that the banks are playing in that segment of the industry. We're also gonna be talking about uh, how the prep industry has navigated the pandemic and what their outlook is for 2021. Uh, the moderator for the session will be my good colleague and friend, Mike Flood at the National MBA. And the panelists will include Cody Sharforis, who's Managing Director and Principal at Slack Capital, and also a member of the California MBA's Board of Directors. So if you're interested in what the outlook is for the commercial finance industry uh, next year, this is the event that you want to participate in. It's happening on December 8th, and we hope that you can join us. That's it for this week. Back to you, Dustin. All right. Thanks, Susan. Now let's jump right into the conversation here. I want to welcome in Mike Flynn. Mike is the is of counsel with Buckhalter, and uh, Mike is also the incoming vice chair of the California MBA's Legal Issues Committee. So welcome, Mike. Thanks, Dustin. And thanks to the uh, CMBA for inviting me to participate. This is a great program, and I'm thrilled to be part of it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, welcome. And so let's, you know, well, let's start at the beginning like we always do. Let's find out what's uh, what's your background, Mike. How'd you get in the uh, legal field and what kind of led you to where you're at now at uh, Buckhalter? Well, I, I got in the legal field basically because I majored in political science in college. And uh, when I was a senior, I really didn't want to go to work. So I, so I took the LSATs and I went to law school and I went to Duke and then moved to California because my mother had moved out here when I was in law school and spent 17 years in Los Angeles and Beverly Hills as a litigator. I ended up litigating mostly real estate, mortgage, and title insurance matters. And from there, went to Chicago Title in, in Chicago, where I was in charge of the lawyers managing all the company's litigation. And then I went to World Savings Bank up in Oakland, which many folks listening in, I hope, will remember, where I, where I led the mortgage servicing lawyers. And then I got a political appointment at HUD, um, where I ended up being the uh, eventually the acting general counsel at HUD during the financial crisis. I was there from 07 to 09. Uh, did a lot of work on TARP and work on the mortgage bailout issues and was the chief counsel to the board oversight board for the Hope for Homeowners program. If people remember that, that was sort of a congressionally created precursor to HARP and HAMP. 
And then after HUD, I went to PNC. They had acquired National City Bank and with it, National City Mortgage. And I went to PNC to be the general counsel of the mortgage operations and built out a mortgage legal team there and started going through the foreclosure look back crisis, PNC being one of the entities that had the independent reviews. I then went, unfortunately my career is very lengthy, but uh, I'll have to keep going. I went through, uh, I went. I then went to Flagstar Bank as their general counsel, Flagstar being a large, uh, a large national mortgage lender and servicer, stayed there for a few years uh, as part of a turnaround team that came in after the company had accepted some TARP money and a new executive team came in. And then I went to uh, Goodwin in DC where I was co-chair of their consumer financial services group. And then uh, we decided to come back to LA. My, my stepchildren, my wife's children are in Denver and New, New Mexico. DC wasn't a good site for, the, for our personal life. So uh, I knew folks at Buckhalter and I knew the reputation of Buckhalter and how involved Buckhalter is in the mortgage and consumer world, called them up and we got together. And I came out here about a year and a half ago and I've gotten very active in CMBA and other areas. And so I, I focus a lot on mortgage, obviously, mortgage regulatory, um, mortgage risk uh, oversight, that sort of thing. And uh, um, that's, the, that's the gist of my practice. Yeah, well, I'm I'm curious. You've got you know an extensive background there, especially in you know the some of the more interesting times in the industry in the last 20 years or so. Um, what would I mean? This is sort of off script here, but I'm curious. What would what was the bigger challenge working at HUD through like in the heart of the financial crisis, or sort of at these companies afterwards, sort of picking up the pieces and rebuilding the practices? Well, that's a really interesting question, and I I really hadn't thought of it. I'd have to say that. They were both hard, but they were hard in very different ways. Um, HUD was hard because what we were doing was largely new. It had never been done before. There was no legal protocol. You know, for instance, could you could you take the language of the TARP statute and say it applied to injecting cash directly into banks instead of buying truly troubled assets out of the secondary market? We were originally at HUD modeling how to buy things out of the secondary market through through F through FHA and Ginny May, and then when Treasury and the Fed want to go a different direction, we of course switch gears. But you know, determination had to be made whether that was appropriate legally. That was, you know, that, that took some hard thinking and 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 serious analysis by some very intelligent people in these agencies. Uh, so that was a a different kind of challenge. And then setting up the Hope for Homeowners program was different because there are always sort of policy and political political in the best sense overlays to any federal program, including what FHA does. And so those considerations had to be built into everything. So that was a very different kind of challenge. Going to PNC and Flagstar was quite different because there it became largely a difficult, ever-shifting operational environment, where particularly with HAMP and HARP, as you recall at the beginning, the rules on those programs changed every few weeks. And sometimes ex post facto, after the fact, there were reinterpretations of things that had been going on for a very long time, including SCRA interpretations by the OCC that they had previously allowed and then changed their minds. Um, that required a lot of nimbleness in those companies. And I think for any lender, particularly the ones going through the foreclosure lookbacks, they had to have a lot of coordination between operations, compliance, risk oversight, and legal, because they that was the point where they all meshed together. And I think it really challenged a lot of companies. And I personally found it quite interesting, but hard work to, have comfort that I was going to bed at night and we had sealed off all the problems we could think of. So I'd say in that sense, they were both really pretty difficult jobs, but quite different. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like you said, I mean, you're, you know, breaking ground essentially in both areas and yeah. not much precedent for either of those. Um, 
So let's fast forward to uh, you know this year. This year has obviously been another one of those years that's uh, been a challenge to say the least. So what are you hearing from your lender clients right now about maybe their biggest challenge that uh, they've had this year and maybe you know what they anticipate in, uh, in the coming year? Well, I, I think one challenge they've had obviously is just the operational and risk management issues involving the different moratoriums of foreclosure eviction moratoriums, the various Freddie Fannie investor guideline changes on, on you know underwriting, do you need to have appraisals? When do you need appraisals? You know, all the sort of ground rules have moved. And so they've had, it's an, it's an operational and then risk management issue for everyone to get that right. I don't think it's particularly legally difficult. The rules are well laid out, but implementation has been a, has been a, a real challenge for people um, in a time when their employees are facing a lot of personal uncertainty. So it's, I think in that sense, it's, it's been difficult. Um, I think they're right now, they're looking at what will happen with the new administration and the, I know we're going to get this later, the CFPB and other agencies and what does that mean? And um, they've also faced some issues this year, I think, just because of the interest rate environment has been so favorable for, for borrowers, for, for refinancers and purchasers that volumes have gone way up. And that's always a stressor, a good stressor, but a stressor on these organizations. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, the lenders I've talked to this year, yeah, I think you're, you're totally right. I mean, it's a good problem to have, but it doesn't mean it's not a, a challenge to keep, you know, while everyone's working from home and, and these right. different uh, scenarios, then and you've got... We, if, you know, if we've learned anything from the past 10 years, from the last crisis to now, it's that regulatory agencies have little tolerance compared to, you know, a generation ago for operational mistakes that affect consumers adversely, particularly consumers who are in economic difficulty. The programs are designed to protect those people. They expect it to work. And so lenders really do face higher levels of challenge in terms of getting their operations right. That I think is, I think they all know that. They seem to react immediately that way. They, they get the issue, but it but it's, it's an operationally uh, imposing issue. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, let's, uh, so, I mean, at this point, it appears that, uh, I mean, obviously there's still like, recounts going and uh, various legal challenges in uh, several states, but it appears at this point, uh, as we do this recording here, that Joe Biden is going to be inaugurated as the next president uh, come January. So how quickly do you think, just from a mortgage banker perspective, how quickly do you think we're going to see a maybe a different approach from either the CFPB or other regulators? Well, First of all, as to other regulators, I'm not sure because we don't know what's going to, for, for national banks, we don't know what's going to happen with the OCC. If President Trump follows through with what he said the other day about nominating and if the Senate pushes through the nomination of uh, uh, Brian Brooks as permanent controller, uh, that would be a very different outcome for the OCC than if, uh, if President-elect Biden does take office and then uh, makes his own appointment. Now, the OCC is not normally a leader in this area, but they but they do regulate people in this area and examine them. So that would be uh, of some interest. I think the CFPB, where you'll see changes very quickly, I think will be in their examination, internal examination protocols, and perhaps not, not the written protocols, but probably the spirit in which they come in and examine people and, and deal with complaints and problems. I think they'll, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an agency that, that still has, embedded in it uh, a sense of, of how aggressive it was or perceived to be under its original director. And uh, I think that's a, probably a fairly easy thing for them to turn again and, and start to resurrect. So I think you'll start seeing them fairly quickly in that regard. Uh, I, I don't think they can quickly rush out and suddenly launch a bunch of uh, enforcement actions. They have to go through processes. 
but I suspect where you'll see things are uh, things that are approaching decision points in enforcement uh, examinations or or or, in, or enforcement actions or negotiations over consent orders. Uh, you may start fairly quickly seeing the CFPB taking a more I don't want to say aggressive is not the right word, but you know, proactive, yeah, a, a stronger position perhaps than they may have. Although I don't think the CFPB ever lightened up as much as some of its critics claimed it did under the Trump administration. Uh, they were still doing enforcement actions and different rules. It will take them a while if they want to undo some of the rules the Trump administration has put in place or some of the rollbacks of, of rules the Trump administration has put in place. That's going to take a while because you have to go through the whole rulemaking process. They're serious people that are going to be coming to CFPB, whoever they are, and they're going to not only follow the processes in order to follow the APA, they're going to want to get it right from their perspective. So they're going to take their time, I think, and do it right. Um, so that will take longer, I think. Um, the other areas where I think you might want to look at least the federal level is, uh, you know, what happens with FHFA and Freddie and Fannie? There'll, there'll be a new director of FHFA, no doubt. Um, in spite of what the FHFA did this week with the new rule about capital requirements, questionable whether they can actually roll Freddie and Fannie out of their conservatorships before January 20th. So if they're still in conservatorship, or even if they're not, um, FHFA is likely in the short term to continue doing what it's doing, I think, regarding moratoriums and protections of consumers uh, facing the COVID crisis. And probably long-term, perhaps a bit more of a pro-consumer focus on some of the programs they ask Freddie and Fannie to implement or tweak. Uh, but we'll have to see how long that takes to filter through. But but uh, I think it's worth keeping an eye on. And you asked about other agencies. Um, I think the more assertive, if that's the right word, position we expect the CFPB to take will probably filter into some of these state agencies. You know, we've seen a lot of states, including California, take a more aggressive position uh, the last few years because of their perception that the CFPB wasn't doing as much as it used to. Some of these states have stepped up quite a bit. Um, I don't think that will disappear. In fact, I think they will probably have the capacity now to coordinate more with the CFPB and do more in that area, uh, perhaps, you know, start turning over some of their investigation information to the CFPB or vice versa. So you may actually see these state agencies getting more, um, I don't wanna say emboldened again, because I don't think it's an us against them situation, but more, more active in what they're doing in terms of consumer protection in the mortgage space. Yeah, well, I mean, specifically to states, is there something specific that uh, you think uh, mortgage bankers should be keeping an eye on, maybe from the the sort of newly, uh, I should say newly minted, but it's more of a uh, renamed uh, Department of uh, Financial Protection and Innovation here in California? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I've talked to some clients, lending clients, mortgage lending clients, who told me that as background, of course, the, the statute that created the uh, or reconstituted the, DEA, the Department of Business Oversight into the Department of Financial Protection and Innovation, um, said that the new uh, you know, UDAP requirements under the new statute and the new registration requirements applied to entities that were not licensed under the traditional uh, DBO regime. So presumably in California, mortgage lenders and servicers are probably already licensed under these regimes or should be. Um, so they, they might think the rules don't apply to them but uh, there's a couple of issues. One is my some of my clients have said they're seeing a more consumer or consumer protection oriented focus already from DBO, now DF, uh, DFPI in their uh, in examinations and interactions on customer complaints and things. It's not surprising if, if part of the agency 
is being charged with getting much more aggressive about these previously unlicensed, you know, fintech companies and other servicers and, and service providers that clearly the state was worried about, then that ethos will no doubt push through the entire examination enforcement area of, of, that, uh, of that agency. It's just natural. So of course it's gonna, it's gonna happen. Plus California is very, as a state, a leading state in the area of consumer protection that's growing and it's gonna continue to grow. Um, the other area that I think is interesting about the, the DFPI uh, in particular is although the new rules apply only to these previously unlicensed entities, uh, a careful reading of the statute says that if a one of these newly covered servicers, service providers is providing services to a covered entity and it's in violation, the covered entity has problems. I don't think that applies to currently licensed entities, but it does create a problem for them in the sense that if you're you if you're a bank and you're partnering with a fintech company that's now licensed, if you're a lender now using a platform provider that for some reason wasn't previously licensed but now is, um, if they are hit with one of these broad UDAP type analyses from the agency, you have vendor management and risk oversight issues internally that you need to be building out for to make sure your vendor management oversight is keeping an eye on those people because agencies, as anyone who's gone through this kind of thing knows, agencies do not like it when they examine a, a licensed covered entity and discover that its servicers or its third parties that it's using have been in violation of the law. So I think it creates not a, not a direct liability under the statute, but a regulatory compliance issue for these institutions that I think people may not have been focusing on yet. Yeah, no, I think that's really good advice for folks right now. I think that's, that's really good advice. Um, so if uh, for folks that maybe not aren't uh, familiar with California's legislative cycle, we just kind of finished our uh, um, our legislative season here recently. Governor Newsom signed uh, bills into law here in October, and most of those bills either uh, took effect immediately or will take effect uh, come January 1 here. So of those that uh, were uh, passed this year, and there were a bunch, um, what do you see maybe as uh, having the biggest impact uh, in the coming year? Well, I think short term, very short term, of course, the um, the restrictions, the continued restrictions on um, evictions uh, following foreclosure and the ability to bring foreclosures and the ability to collect rents for lenders that are uh, have taken back or have REOs but have tenants or if the restrictions on foreclosures themselves uh, lift and they're able to get a property uh, somehow through through a trustee sale or other foreclosure mechanism, um, they're going to have trouble evicting people and have trouble collecting rents for the period in which they couldn't evict them. If they don't, and and even if they, when they are able to do so, because the, the borrower was defaulted because of, you know, an at-fault issue, which as the statute calls it, which would be uh, something like collection of rent or, um, you know, committing a crime on the premises or, or, or something like, or failure to pay rent or committing crime on the premises. Um, even if you have that, you've got to jump through a lot of hoops to be able to do it, a lot of proper disclosures. And I don't think the courts are going to be lenient about failure to have the disclosures done properly. So it's another operation. All these things keep coming back in the modern world these days to operational and risk management issues. And there's an example of where you have to get your processes right up front or you're not going to be able to capitalize on what you should be able to recover. But the statute, Dustin, I'm actually more interested in that I think is more interesting is um, the uh, Senate Bill 1079, which uh, for those who don't know, created a new uh, 
twist on the uh, trustee sale regime here in California. Traditionally, a trustee sale is held. The high bidder prevails if they can show proof they have the money to pay the bid uh, via cashier's check or something else. And then within 15 days, the trustee is to transfer title to them. This new statute provides that uh, for single family, one to four unit properties, um, if certain select parties step forward within 15 days of the sale, and those can include a tenant in the property, a third party who submits a non-binding statement to the trustee that they intend to move into the property, I believe within 60 days, and will live there for 12 months, certain designated state agencies or certain types of third party organizations, nonprofits essentially, that are engaged in the area of affordable housing creation and preservation. If those, um, if any of those types of entities notify the trustee that they intend to bid, the trustee does not transfer title to the high bidder 15 days after the sale. It has well, to wait after the sale. 30 days. It extends it out for 45 days now to see if those parties come in. And if one of them does, they, they get the property. I think, Justin, you know, we, you, you and I talked about some of these issues last week ourselves. Um, this creates a whole slew of uncertainties and interesting questions, such as, um, Will, will there be many people who claim they want to buy the property to live in it, or will many tenants step up under this regime? Because how do you get a loan? You know, you still have to bring the bid in to the trustee within the 45 days, bring the actual cashier's check, certified check, cash, whatever it is to establish the winning bid. But how do you do that uh, for a tenant or um, potential normal uh, residential buyer who's going to live there? Those are not investors. Those are ordinary consumers. And banks are not going to lend mortgages when you don't have title to a property. So you'd have to get a loan in the full amount, at least some sort of bridge loan. Not everyone, particularly tenants, are going to be in the position to get that kind of credit approval. So it's not clear how much help for affordable housing preservation that side of the bill is. What's going to be more interesting is, will the state at some point start funding some state agencies to step in and, and become participants in a meaningful way? And will there be third-party NGOs that do this, and is it possible, something I was thinking the other day about is, is it possible that some investors will see that as a play where they team up with these, NG, these NGO type organizations to get to create a market here? And if this becomes a reality, if there is some significant amount of postponement of trustee sales, once we start having sales again, and I should add, this is an issue because of course, fairly soon now, particularly if the vaccine works, foreclosures are gonna reappear. And they'll probably reappear in greater numbers than we were having before. So it's going to have heightened scrutiny and a heightened effect on, on the economy and on ordinary people. And if, in fact, there is a, any sort of significant amount of this type of delay bidding that extends foreclosures out, how will lenders react? Because it, it creates a lot of problems. How much should they bid? How much will the usual investors that come in and bid on these kind of properties, how much will they bid? How much are they willing to bid out on several properties? Um, you know, will they, will they just will they just bid ad hoc and hope some of them hit? And if they end up having bid on too many, they walk away from some. And will will they price differently? Will they price lower? Will they price higher to drive away these third parties that now have the right to extend this? We don't know. How you know? I mean, that is a strategy. You could bid high, hoping that no one then submits a claim they're going to outbid you. But but that's also dangerous because they might. And um, uh, and and you know what banks do. And then the risks banks and those kind of investors have and how they factor that into the bidding of the extended extra 30 days the property remains in the borrower's title. Um, you have increased likelihood of nuisance, damage to the property, uh, theft, uh, break-ins, 
fi you know, fires, all sorts of things that happen to properties uh, while there's possibly someone there who owns the property who no longer has a big equity stake in the property and wants to preserve it. And in that case, what does that do to the bidding that banks do? Are we gonna see decreased bidding amounts from everyone on these kind of properties? And will that really help preserve affordable housing or will it move other investors to come in to try to grab up these cheaper properties? We're gonna to have to see how it plays out, but I think they've, they've, they, their intentions were clear here. They thought this would be a good way to help preserve affordable housing, but I think it's gonna create a lot of uh, interesting dynamics and probably unintended consequences. We'll have to see how they shake out if this, if this statute gets any traction at all. Yeah, it seems like it's almost it could almost create a scenario where you're, you know, creating games of chicken between investors and these NGOs and stuff. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that uh, plays out. So on a I mean, on a related note, where are we at uh with uh, the residential eviction moratoria and what are we likely to see in the coming year? Well, I mean, there still are uh, you know, you have the Freddie Fannie uh foreclosure moratoria and eviction moratoria which um, right now are only extended through December 31st, I think, if I call correctly. And, um, you know, whether FHF, whether the current director of FHA is going to extend those, who knows? But if he doesn't, and the, and the vaccine hasn't been widely distributed by January 20th, which of course it won't be, um, I think you'll see whoever gets appointed uh, as the head of the FHFA and nominate, if the Senate will nominate them fairly quickly, which I suspect will probably happen, they would likely you know, do that again, or Freddie and Fannie on their own may do it because, um, you know, if, you, if you're having, if states are imposing eviction moratoriums, it's not clear what good a foreclosure does if you can't follow up with evictions. So, uh, in, in many instances, so I, I think that's that's an issue. The states, uh, particularly in California, um, you know, local jurisdictions have the authority to, uh, under Governor Newsom, to have them in place now. I'm sure to the extent they need further authority to go past the first of the year, if, if the, if the uh, pandemic is still in place the way it is now, the governor's obviously going to extend that and give them the ability to do that if they don't have it already. Um, so I think you'll see those extended. Uh, you have the, the statute, you know, uh, AB 3088 we just talked about that has limitations on evictions and such that's going to slow things down. Um, so I full I, my read of it is until the vaccine has taken effect and returned the whole economy, not just sort of the macro high level economy, which seems to be doing pretty well, but there's an awful lot of individuals who aren't doing well. Small small store owners, people who worked at smaller companies, people who got laid off. Uh, you know, there's a lot of unemployment sort of that may not be reported, a lot of partial employment, a lot of people who are having trouble making ends meet. And a lot of people who had to do forbearance and we'll probably see more of that. So I, I think we'll continue to see foreclosure moratoria and eviction moratoria for a while and probably only get unwound gradually sort of subset by subset, I would think, to protect people who are most needy. But I don't think we're going to get back to a normal foreclosure eviction situation, if that's an idea of normal, I don't know, that's a strange way to phrase it. But if, I don't think we'll get back to what had been before for quite a long time now. Yeah, I think that's right. So, I mean, based on all that we've talked about here uh, with uh, all the regulatory stuff at both at the federal level and here in California, what's maybe, if I'm a lender watching this and I'm you know, sort of getting, it's almost like a fire hose coming at me, what's one thing that a lender can do right now to protect their business and maybe mitigate this liability and regulatory risk? I think the first thing is um, take a look at your risk risk oversight, compliance implementation, rule implementation processes. Verify they work. 
um, your regulators won't be happy if you get it wrong and you haven't really made sure your own processes of that higher level work. And then go down a level and take a look at your processes on these oper specific operational questions and make sure they work. And then something else I've seen that people may not be focusing on is a lot of these questions lenders are getting, particularly servicers are getting, but lenders too in some underwriting situations on um, evictions, moratoria, and more importantly, what are the various types of deferments and forbearances that are allowed and how do they work? Um, a lot of that is new to the servicers, at least in the bulk that they're seeing them and the specifics of some of the programs. And they probably got people on the front line operating these call centers that are fairly inexperienced in this area. They need to take a hard look at their call scripts and the question answer call responses that people are allowed to make and make sure they are accurate. And as these rules start changing, get those changed immediately and train your people because that I think that's an area where you could end up with real problems. Someone ends up being told, uh, you know, they're not entitled to a forbearance when they are because the call center person read the wrong answer or something, you know, those kind of things happen and and uh, they're understandable. It's human nature. We all, all systems fail at some point, but this is an area where failure probably won't be tolerated. Yeah, yeah, it seems like something that you could easily overlook, but good advice to maybe check on that now. Use the maybe the uh, um, the next couple of months here to do that before the next year really kicks off, especially if there's a change yeah. in administration and change in, in focus from uh, regulators. Um, so uh, we've got time for one more question here, and uh, um, this is more focused on the uh, advocacy side of the piece, which both the California MBA and the National MBA have been you know hard at work the last year or so working through a lot of this legislation. Uh, so from your your perch there, um, how crucial is the industry's advocacy efforts right now, again, both at D.C. here and uh, and in Sacramento? Well, I think in Sacramento, what you've been doing is and, and other groups is usually important. We saw it, you know, the legislature in August and September rushed to implement a number of bills they thought were absolutely necessary before they went on a session. That led to a lack of hearings, very little time for interested parties to educate uh, legislators on the issues. And, and for instance, on the uh, the bill that created the uh, uh, put in new requirements for how COVID-related forbearances and COVID-related post-forbearances are to be treated, they don't necessarily create new obligations for uh, most of our audience members because they were already covered by federal. It's basically you have to follow certain federal rules. They were already covered by Freddie, Fannie, the TRID rules, and everything else. But it uh, it did provide a uh, Sort of a new quiver, uh, a new arrow in the quiver for regulators to accuse people of yet something else. And, and more importantly, as my understanding is originally, it was much more specifically designed to cover those kind of entities. And uh, similarly, uh, you know, there were issues initially about the extent to which the um, the new uh, the new Department of uh, Financial Protection and Innovation, the new licensing regime would cover the previously licensed banks, mortgage lenders, and servicers. And my understanding is that CMBA played a very significant role in uh, in getting some uh, some safe harbors and other things built with that legislation that made it uh, operationally clearer what the boundaries were for, for your constituency and to perhaps build in some meaningful protection for them. I think on the national level, um, you're going, to have to, you're going to have sort of the same thing, but on a much longer time frame as the CFPB starts looking at possibly redoing some rules. And, and asking FHFA, possibly Freddie and Fannie and others to redo rules, but not asking FHFA, but if FHFA follows that idea and starts looking at the rules. Uh, but that's a longer term play. Uh, I think there's a need at the federal level. The CFPB is gonna have some 
some new people in some fairly senior positions and perhaps some people who've been there before but have been out for a while and education is always important for those kind of people you know when i was at hud um i didn't mind lobbyists coming in and talking to us i always learned something from all sides of whatever side the lobbyist was on you always learn something and learn about key issues that you then have to explore that's your obligation and so i think getting in front of them and and working with them will be really helpful. It may not get you the full result you want, but it can certainly keep things from going off the rails and perhaps get some consistency in, in long-term approaches. So I think it's it's really important that the, the DC aspect of this continue as well. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point you make about education. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I think when folks hear advocacy that uh, these organizations like us and the uh, MBA do, you think, you know, more just advocacy, but not necessarily the education portion of it, which is huge. That is, I mean, I don't want to say the majority, but that is a huge chunk of time that our, our lobbyists uh, uh, spend educating the uh, lawmakers who, I mean, again, they're dealing with the very inter intricate nature of some of these uh, transactions. And, uh, you know, they're not mortgage experts, obviously, and they would admit to that. So it's important that they do get educated. So Look, there's a reason why, why lawmakers have large staffs and allow yeah. allow educational programs of that type, because they're dealing with every aspect of life in California. Just to say California, for instance, you're right, they can't be mortgage experts. They're, they're not experts on most things they touch. And even if they do take a focus on mortgage, they very rarely have had either an in-government agency enforcement perspective or, more importantly, an industry-related perspective. Um, you know, when I was at HUD working on the 08 RESPA reforms, uh, I was surprised when I first got there that most of the people involved didn't have those kind of experiences. And um, it, it has an impact. You know, if you look... That those people they have to get educated and um so what you're doing is really quite important yeah well hey mike really appreciate the time a great conversation i think we could have gone on a lot more i really enjoy uh, you know uh, chatting and yakking about uh, what's going on in the regulatory legal and and legislative world um so again you know thanks for your time appreciate it look forward to uh, working again working with you again this year coming up with our our legal issues committee thanks dustin i'll put it with you and then thanks to the cnba again for letting me participate in the program yeah. Well, if you enjoyed the conversation here, make sure and uh, subscribe to us here. You can subscribe on our YouTube channel. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And uh, we're actually going to take next week off. Uh, so help, hope everyone enjoys their uh, Thanksgiving break with their, with their families and uh, enjoys a, uh, a safe time there. And then we'll see you next time on Connect. <laughs>